Hello and welcome to the August edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have David Bardell discussing proteomics of peritoneal fluid and plasma in colics, and Michelle Delco talking about intraarticular analgesia and how it may affect lameness of the foot. David Bardell is a senior lecturer in anaesthesia and analgesia at Liverpool University, and he'll be discussing his recent paper, currently in the early view section of the EVJ website, titled Differences in Plasma and Peritoneal Fluid Proteomes Identifies Potential Biomarkers Associated with Survival Following Strangulating Small Intestinal Disease. David, thank you very much for joining us today to discuss your recent paper um, on plasma and peritoneal fluid proteomics in EVJ. I'll start by asking a little bit uh, about the background of this paper. When assessing a horse with colic, um, we routinely measure the total protein concentration of plasma and peritoneal fluid to help us assess the severity of the patient's condition. So could you tell us what exactly these protein levels are telling us um, and how they affect the horse's chance of survival? Well, I think historically people have just looked at the quantitative um, protein concentration, as you say, and the literature is a little bit um, confusing potentially on some of these. But what we're basically trying to tell is, as far as plasma protein is concerned, whether we're looking at a horse that has got a, a of fluid deficit so that it becomes hemoconcentrated as a consequence of that the the total plasma protein will increase now with peritoneal fluid obviously that's typically a very low protein fluid so any increases in that uh, tend to be significant and again as a total protein measure they're largely non-specific for for what the proteins are and what those are, are really telling us about the about the condition but we know that uh, an increase is um is not a good sort of clinical finding and potentially a, a poor prognostic indicator. So um, the confounding thing comes because not, not always, we don't know the, the starting baseline for, for these values in that particular horse. And also with things like plasma protein, we can we can potentially have protein losing um, enteropathies, which will drop the plasma protein as well. So they can give us a very confusing picture as to the actual clinical condition of the horse if you take them in isolation. So obviously it's important to measure those and, and consider them with regards to the, the other clinical findings when you're examining your, your colic patient. So how can qualitative analysis of these samples provide more information about the condition? Well, I think if we if we look more at what the actual proteins are that are changing, that will give us, uh, again, slightly deeper insight into the pathology that, that's ongoing. So it may be that we're just looking at an overall increase in, say, total plasma proteins, which would indicate um, fluid deficit. But if we are seeing particular proteins going up or, or down, um, and similarly with the peritoneal fluid proteins, they can start to highlight what sort of biochemical pathways are being disrupted or being sort of induced uh, as a result of whatever the primary pathology is. When we're faced with a colicking horse, obviously, initially, we don't know what's going on other than the horse is in pain so there's a huge range of potential pathologies that we could be dealing with and if we can try and narrow down whether we're looking at an inflammatory condition or um, something like that then it will it will allow us to potentially take our findings and, and attach a little bit more sort of importance to them. So what were the specific aims and hypotheses of this study? Basically, 
initially it's just a, a kind of a look-see to see what is going on in these horses. It's a very preliminary study, um, as we, we intended it to be, just to, to find out what is happening, if we can actually detect any differences. So we wanted to take uh, as normal a cohort of horses as we could, so we, we elected to take um, orthopaedic cases, which we were pretty sure had no pre-existing or ongoing gastrointestinal problems, and then compare them to a very specific cohort of colicking horses, which are the strangulating small intestinal lesion cases. And then hopefully to so kind of see if we could detect any difference between survivors and non-survivors. Now, twofold really um, is to first of all see if we could if we could detect any any significant differences between principally surviving horses and non-surviving horses, then that might open up the door to developing um, one of these um, one of some of these candidates as potential biomarkers with some sort of associated prognostic value. So potentially we could then try and elucidate if there's any sort of correlation between expression levels of these proteins and chances of survival, so that we could then potentially give owners a more accurate prognosis if we could um, fall back on that information. But also, um, again, looking at the more qualitative aspect, if we could identify particular cellular pathways which were involved or um, discriminated between survivors and non-survivors, it might potentially open the door for targeting therapeutics a little bit more accurately. So there's a potential there for some sort of therapeutic uh, intervention as well. Okay, and could you give us a little description or a little bit of description about your study design and how you took and analysed these samples? Okay, so basically the, the colic horses, we just collected samples routinely as we would during a normal clinical examination. So we routinely take blood and peritoneal fluid as part of our diagnostic workup. These samples were then centrifuged to remove the cellular component and snap frozen at the time for um, prior to analysis and then when we had collected a significant or a substantial number of samples we then looked at which of those horses we could include so we wanted horses where samples had been acquired without any potential contamination so that ruled out a number of samples that we'd got and then we looked at those colic horses which had undergone surgery had proceeded to have a resection and then following that those that had either survived discharge from the hospital or those that had been euthanized subsequently to the surgery. Um, so that kind of discriminated which samples we took forward for analysis and then we subjected those to um, label-free proteomics which is basically liquid chromatography to separate out the, the various proteins and then uh, mass spectrometry to fragment the, the proteins that we had and allow identification based on the, the peptides that you get from protein fragmentation. And that allows proteins to be identified fairly accurately because they, we are identifying them by unique peptides that belong to the, the parent protein. So that gives us a fairly high degree of confidence that we are accurately identifying our proteins. And then we basically just did some fairly basic statistics to look at how the expression levels of those um, proteins varied between a the control horses and all of the um, colicking horses that we included. And then we took the colic horses and subdivided those into those that survived to discharge and those that didn't, and then looked for statistically significant differential expression of those of any proteins between those two cohorts. So that kind of narrowed down our, our more our field to the more sort of interesting proteins, if you like. Um, now, it's always slightly difficult when you're dealing with biological fluids like 
plasma and peritoneal fluid because they're very complex mixtures and they contain an awful lot of um, substances. So the way we treat those is to try and remove initially some of the very highly abundant proteins, particularly in, in the plasma samples, where albumin would tend to basically swamp the signals from all the other proteins that we're, we're interested in. And it's typically the, the very low expression proteins that are going to be changing, uh, we think, during these processes. So we've performed an initial step on our samples to try and remove um, principally albumin or to reduce its level so that we could then see the underlying signal that was associated with the rest of the proteins. Okay, it sounds very, very complex. So um, what, what were the main differences you found between the control cohort and the horses, survivors and non-survivors suffering from strangulating small intestinal disease? Well, I think one of the interesting findings initially was that we identified a large number of proteins uh, in the peritoneal fluid and the plasma, which I, I found quite surprising. Um, we then looked at um, so the differential expression and we had um, relatively few proteins differentially expressed between control and colic horses only about 13 of them um, whereas in the peritoneal fluid we had um, initially about 123 differentially expressed proteins between the controls and colic so a, a greater number of proteins that were changing in response to the disease now in order to not sort of fall into any statistical traps we were quite strict on how we handled that and we, we did a further um, analysis of the data to try and rule out sort of false false positives so we, we but we still end up with about 45 differentially expressed proteins between survivors and sorry between controls and, and colics um, interestingly there were only four proteins that were common to both fluid types so it seems that they are behaving quite differently um, when the disease is ongoing and again, with the plasma proteins, we only found four that were significantly differentially expressed between survivors and non-survivors. So we've got a fairly small pool to kind of investigate further, which could then be used as a potential biomarker or for further analysis. Whereas with the um, so survivors and the non-survivors, we had 12 proteins that showed uh, significant differential expression. So again, it seems that the peritoneal fluid is potentially a more sensitive um, indicator or is reacting more promptly to, to disease changes, which I guess kind of makes sense because it's in direct contact with the area that the pathology is involving. So um, most of the proteins that we identified were, were highest in the, in the surviving horses um, with only, only two of the peritoneal fluid proteins and two of the plasma proteins actually reduced um, in the survivals. So um, there's obviously quite a, a lot of um, response and uh, activity going on with these biofluids and it means that you know potentially um, it's quite exciting to then take this on and investigate it further to to find out uh, where we well basically where we go next with this information. Mm. So from the proteins that you've been discussing that were differentially mm. expressed between the survivors and the non-survivors, yeah. um, can you tell us a little bit about those that might be interesting or significant and what, what they might be telling us? Um, yes, I mean, we've, we've done quite a, a lot of further work on these and basically the proteins that we are we're going to take forward fall into four basic categories as far as their, their function is concerned. So we have those that are involved with um, coagulation profiles, um, those that are involved with extracellular matrix maintenance and integrity, 
those obviously that are involved with inflammation, which wouldn't be uh, terribly surprising, um, and also um, a number that are involved with um, cell cycle and cellular metabolism. So we've got um, several things going on here. We've got disturbances in um, circulation and, and coagulation profiles, which again, if we think about seriously colicking horses or, or sick horses with colic, we know that they have altered coagulation profiles. Um, a lot of proteins were, were related to immunomodulation and inflammation. So um, again, it could be a interesting in sort of indicating the degree of uh, disruption to the mechanical integrity of the, the gut lining and how much lipopolysaccharide is getting from gut lumen into circulation and causing a reaction. Um, and also those horses that may be able to mount a more effective um, response to maintaining extracellular integrity and kind of limiting the, the damage caused by devitalized gut. Um, and also the ability um, with the cell metabolism proteins to repair and restore the damage once it's occurred, because we know that following surgery, if we correct the problem, that cellular changes still continue to, to occur subsequently. And actually, once you have ischemic damage to the gut, once you've corrected that blood flow problem, that those changes continue to, or there are still deterioration in the in the chain in the in the gut wall that continue once we've restored um, blood flow. So we've got a, I say, a number of um, potential avenues to explore here as to, to work out if we can intervene in any particular area to hopefully improve the outcome. So how far off do you think um, we'll be able to use this in clinical practice, this qualitative analysis? Uh, I think at the moment, quite a way, unfortunately, we we have, um, I mean, it would be nice to find the, the silver bullet or the, the thing that stands out above all else, but um, we still have a lot of work to do on these. This is, say, only a preliminary study with a relatively small number of uh, participants. So we need to validate these findings and see if we can repeat them, which we are doing at the moment. And we have now just got some results back from another cohort of um, surviving and non-surviving horses. Um, and then we have to work out if it's possible to potentially develop a, a, a stable side test, such as um, like an ELISA SNAP test, something like that, similar to the FOAL IgG tests. If we can quantify or semi-quantify uh, the levels of one of these markers so that we can then use that in a practical way. But at the moment, it's, uh, it's still very much in the preliminary stages, I'm afraid. Okay. Uh, do you have a take-home message um, to summarise this for us? I think it, I think it, to me it's interesting in that um, we often it's a historically used to not take peritoneal fluid samples from horses that we were investigating because we could make the decision to go for surgery based on other clinical findings, which is which is fair enough. But I think if we if we continue to analyse and, and investigate peritoneal fluid, actually it's it's a very useful um, fluid for potentially using as a, a marker for prognostic indication. Um, so I think don't overlook doing belly taps on horses. At the moment, obviously, we're limited by what we can tell from it as far as total protein or lactate or you know, colour and turbidity and that kind of thing. But hopefully, ultimately, we can, um, we can use it as a, as a more useful uh, marker for being able to determine what's going wrong with these horses and how serious they are. OK, well, David, thanks again for um, joining us on the podcast. That's OK. You're welcome. Many thanks. Michelle Delco is an equine surgeon and assistant research professor at Cornell University, splitting her time between Cornell Ruffian and Cornell Ithaca. 
She'll be chatting about her paper titled Intraarticular Anesthesia of the Equine Stifle Improves Foot Lameness. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about your recent paper in EVJ. Thank you for having me. Can I start by asking you to detail some of the complications experienced when using both perineural and intraarticular anesthesia to localize your lameness? Sure. So um, as clinicians, when we do lameness workups, we know that um, we need to interpret these nerve and joint blocks with a grain of salt, meaning that um, these techniques are really useful in helping us localize the site of pain, uh, but there are a number of caveats to their interpretation. So from research studies in both human and veterinary medicine, we know that anesthetic agents can actually diffuse um, quite a long distance from the site where they were applied. So for example, um, we know that after a, a coffin joint block, uh, progressively over time, the structure surrounding the joint will become desensitized. So the longer you wait, the less specific that block is for diagnosing joint with uh, pain within the stifled joint to the point where if you lose track of time and you don't watch the horse trot until 30 minutes or so after the block is placed, you really have a hard time knowing if that improvement was because of a problem within the joint itself or in the surrounding soft tissues or even the navicular region. Um, so, but nobody has really looked at a similar phenomenon in the joints sort of higher up in the limb. So what was the objective of this study in particular? Yeah. So because we know that the nerves that supply pain sensation to the lower limb, uh, run in close proximity to the the stifle joint capsule, we wanted to look at whether or not um, a stifle joint block can improve lameness that um, originates in the lower limb. Okay, so how many horses did you include in the study? Um, what was your inclusion criteria and what was, what was the signalment of the popula study population? Yeah, so this was a population of horses that are a part of our teaching and research herd. Um, so they're predominantly brood mares, um, and we used nine horses. Um, the population was reflective of our uh, research herd. So the mean age was 17 years, and we had a, a mixture of breeds, so mostly warm bloods and thoroughbreds, but a few odd um, other animals. And um, the exclusion criteria was um, any horse that was lame trotting in hand out at the farm. So we just assessed them using the AAP scale and any horse that was visibly lame at the trot um, was um, automatically excluded. And then we brought horses into the clinic and used um, an inertial sensor system to do objective gait analysis. And any horse that had um, lameness uh, in their hind limbs based on that analysis was also excluded. And could you describe your whole study protocol for us? Sure. So we used a hoof clamp uh, model of to create lameness in the hind limb, um, and that's been previously described. It's nice because it's um, relatively easy and um, quickly reversible. So the hoof clamp we applied hoof clamps to both hind limbs in each horse. Um, and then we used, again, the inertial sensor system to do object objective uh, gait analysis just to make sure um, placing the hoof clamps didn't um, 
cause lameness, which it didn't. Um, then we tightened a single hoof clamp on their hind limb until we could visually see them um, lame at the trot. So just when we could see them lame at the trot, um, we stopped tightening the hoof clamp. We used gait analysis to uh, determine their baseline lameness. Um, and then we followed their lameness every 10 minutes for 90 minutes. And after each trial, we then loosened the hoof clamp. So each horse, each of the nine horses had this done two times in a crossover uh, trial where um, some horses had uh, a stifle block applied after the lameness was induced. And then we followed them for 90 minutes. Um, and then some horses had no block. Um, and then we waited um, at least two days in each horse and, and they had the opposite treatment. So each horse had a blocked trial and then a controlled trial where they didn't have a stifle block. Okay. And I think you then made sure the lameness was coming from the foot by blocking the, at the abaxial sesamoid. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. At the end of the 90 minutes, we did place an abaxial block just to confirm um, that those, you know, the horses improved um, and that the, the lameness was truly um, all from their lower limb. Okay. You also um, described using a lameness locator and inertial sensor system to quantify the lameness. How did you differentiate between a push-off lameness compared to a landing hind limb lameness? Yeah, so um, the push-off lameness, or um, what we call diff max, is um, the difference in the maximum height that the pelvis reaches after um, push-off, so during the flight phase, of the right and left hind limbs. Um, So obviously as the horse trots um, and pushes off, um, from each hind limb, the, the pelvis will reach a maximum height. And the difference in that height between the left and the, the right hind limbs is um, quantified as their push-off lameness. And their landing lameness is the difference in the minimum heights of their pelvis during the stance phase of the right and left hind limbs. So when their foot's on the ground, how low does their pelvis get? Okay. So looking at your results, um, did you find that the hoof clamp managed to produce a repeatable foot lameness in the hind limb? Yes, in the sense that uh, the hoof clamp um, did produce lameness in all horses, um, but it wasn't possible to fine tune the exact magnitude of the lameness that we created with the hoof clamp. So all the horses were grade three out of five subjectively. Um, so visibly lame at the trot, but there was quite a wide range um, within that grade three out of five based on gait analysis. Okay, and coming to the main the main question, did the intraarticular anesthesia of the stifle joint, um, I think you blocked all three compartments, did it affect the foot lameness at all? Yeah, so when we looked at the, the diff min, so the landing lameness over 90 minutes, we, we didn't see a, a significant change with or without the block. But when we looked at the diff max, um, the average diff max for all the horses of their push-off lameness, um, it 
the the diff max progressively improved over time in the group that had the stifle block. So it did seem to improve um, push off lameness. And when we broke the data down a bit further, it became clear that there was a lot of variability um, in how an individual horse responded. So some seemed to improve very quickly. Um, I think five out of nine horses improved uh, by about 30 to 60% within 30 minutes. Um, and then the, the other four out of nine horses improved less than 10%. So it essentially didn't improve um, within that first 30 minutes. Okay, so why do you think there was this difference between the um, anesthetic effects on the push-off um, as opposed to the landing lameness? Yeah, so it's hard to know for sure, but um, it may have been sort of a, a result of the um, a function of the type of lameness that we created. So the hoof clamp presumably um, creates laminar pain in the foot. Um, and we know that when horses push off, there's an increased strain on their dorsal laminae. So um, the peroneal nerve runs close to the lateral femorotibial joint capsule. Um, and so if the block were to preferentially desensitize um, this nerve, it could have a relative improvement in the push off lameness. Okay. So it, basically it may have to do with both our model of lameness that we used as well as um, the neural anatomy. So due to the findings of, of your study, uh, would you always now recommend blocking horses in a distal to proximal manner? I know this is the usually the done thing anyway, but would you um, advocate this? Yeah, and, you know, um, this study was motivated um, by, you know, it's not uncommon for us to, if we have a high suspicion of stifle lameness, um, it's not, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to just go ahead and block the stifle and, and see if the horse improves. Um, but given uh, the findings here, I would be hesitant to um, rule, completely rule out a, a lower limb lameness um, based on just a stifle block. I would want to in some way, rule out the lower limb before I made that diagnosis. So either sort of starting um, low and per proceeding um, up the limb or, you know, um, coming back at a later time and at least just ruling out the lower limb. Mm. So what would be your overall take-home message from this study for the equine practitioners listening? Yeah, I think there are two things. And, and first would be that I would want to rule out um, lower limb lameness before I made a, a diagnosis of, of stifle lameness just based on a stifle block. Um, you know, either prior to placing a stifle block or coming back um, the next day and just ruling out the lower limb. Um, and then also just knowing that because of continued diffusion of anesthetic outside um, the stifle joint for potentially up to 90 minutes or more, I would be hesitant to interpret any lower limb blocks that were placed after a stifle block. So um, it may be that safer to make a stifle block the last block of the day, so to speak. Um, so I, I think it does somewhat change our workflow 
when it comes to stifle blocks. Okay, well, that gives us all food for thought and is a very interesting study. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks again for listening and please join us again in two months for the next episode.